you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. Last week we finished James. It was a tremendous time as we walked through the book of James and really saw practical Christianity in action and the call to practically live out our faith. This morning we are going to begin over the next three weeks leading up to Easter, uh, walking through some gospel passages, looking at the passion of Christ trying to understand what Christ is talking about when he speaks of his passion and this prediction of going to to the cross. And so this morning, as we uh, open up to Mark chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 27. Uh, If you found your place, say amen. Okay, follow with me as I read. James went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. And he summoned the crowd with the disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In chapter 9, verse 1, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you would teach us by your word. Lord, as we even look at a familiar passage, I pray that you would help us to see the wonderful, marvelous truth of who you are. I pray that you would open our eyes to see and to understand who you are, Lord Jesus. God, that you would open our hearts to comprehend and to love what your word is teaching us today. And Lord, that you would open, uh, open our minds and our hearts and give us a strength to live out and to walk according to your word and according to your demand. Oh God, that we would lay ourselves aside for the sake of your glory and for the sake of pursuing you. And teach us today, Lord Jesus. Give us hearts that yearn and long to know you more to walk more closely with you, to, to grow in our, in our relationship and our fellowship with you, and to love your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
The title of the passage this morning, or the message this morning rather, is The Passion of Christ. Who is Jesus? And so this week, as we <clears throat> begin looking at this passage in Mark chapter 8, it probably is a familiar passage for many of us, maybe not for some, but maybe yes for others. And this is a passage you may have heard many sermons on this passage. And so I just want to clarify from the beginning, I, I don't hope to uh, unearth some, uh, some new truth this morning, but the real joy about walking through passages such as this at Easter is that, that, that we get to celebrate the faithfulness of God and we celebrate this time of year where Christ has, we celebrate what Christ has done on the cross and that journey that leads up to what Christ has done on the cross. And so I think one of the main questions that Mark deals with in this passage is this question that Jesus begins to ask his disciples. It's really a great question. It's a question that has many different answers today even, as it did in Jesus' day when he asked the disciples the question. And so he begins in verse 27 by asking the question, who do people say that I am? And this question that he asks, it's a question that elicits some different responses from the popular responses of the day or from the people of the day. And these responses that, that are elicited from, uh, from the disciples here and that the people of the day are giving, some say that you're Elijah. Uh, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're one of the prophets. And these certainly were, they were good answers. I mean, Elijah was a man of God. The prophets, they were men of God. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ and a man of God. And so these certainly were great answers that pointed to, well, we know this is one that has something to do with God. I submit to you that just by seeing the Lord Jesus walk on the earth and seeing the ministry that he did, people could not deny that there was a connection between Jesus and God. But their answers were insufficient. Their answers did not quite reach the understanding and the depth of understanding that Jesus wants his disciples to understand and that followers of Christ need to understand. And so the first point I want us to see this morning is this. Discerning Jesus' identity means being open to changing my view. Discerning Jesus' identity means being open to changing my view now, this is important, and so before we begin to think about some relative approach to Scripture or the, the relativism, I just want you to hear me out here. For the disciples, for those who come proclaiming to know the identity of Jesus, who do people say that I am? Discerning and understanding the identity of Jesus means that we must be open to changing our views. You know, I... I went and looked online to try to find a video that we could show this morning of this question being asked. And of course, I searched YouTube, but in the midst of all the searching, there was always something in the video that stood out that would not be good for the context here this morning. But the popular answers of the day, you might be surprised just to hear the popular answers of the day of who people today, I mean today, say Jesus is. Some say he's a good moral teacher 
Some say he was a prophet of God. They continue to say these things. Others say, well, he was just a good man. Others say, well, I believe in the historical account of Jesus that he existed, but he died and nothing else came of his life. Others say, well, some people believe and that's good for them, but I choose not to walk and believe in Jesus Christ. Others say, I don't know who he is. And there's a whole broad spectrum that goes from one extreme to the other of people who have an answer to this question today. But Jesus really wanted to get at the heart of something else, and that was to understand or to have his disciples understand who he really was and to hear them, though he knew their heart, to hear them vocalize who he was. And so, in verse 28, they told him, giving him the answers. And in verse 29, he continued questioning them, and he said to them, point blank, who do you say that I am? And when he asked this question, who do you say that I am? Peter gives the answer, you are the Christ. A tremendous answer. This is the first time that these words have been spoken by a follower of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And this is the declaration, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That's the word. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the one sent from God. Peter declares boldly, you are the Christ. I think as we read this passage, many of us get to this point and we maybe jump up and down, at least inside, with enthusiasm over Peter getting it and the disciples getting it. I mean, he has recognized this wonderful truth. And I think as believers, we want to identify with Peter at this point. And as we read this passage, this declaration, we think, yes, Peter, you've got it. And he's the champion here of of boldness. And then like Peter, we declare, yes, Lord Jesus, you, you are the Christ. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 30. What Jesus says to Peter, and he warned them, to all the disciples, he warned them to tell no one about him. Peter doesn't fully understand yet. It's, Peter hasn't really gotten the full concept then of who Jesus is as Messiah. Jesus' response to Peter in verse 30 is almost anticlimactic. It's known here as the messianic secret. But the question that we have to wrestle with is, why does Mark give us this account of Jesus' response to Peter? If you look over in Matthew chapter 16, you see a completely different response to the disciples. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, right? The son of the living God. And Jesus replies to Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. And upon you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom and are the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be, have been loosed in heaven. This is a much different account of Jesus' response to Peter than we have in the Gospel of Mark, is it not? 
I mean, here we, we see that in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, we, we see that Jesus has, has been, uh, that Jesus has really responded to Peter uh, very positively and, and encouraged him in this response. But in verse 30, Mark just leaves this out in Mark chapter 8. So he warned them to tell no one about him. And the reason is because Peter doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. Culturally, Peter and the disciples, as well as all Judaism, they have long awaited for the Messiah, whom they believe will liberate them from political oppression, political bondage, and Peter has, and even physical bondage. And Peter has been conditioned by the traditions of religion, by those religious teachers. He has been conditioned by those traditions and by the cultural expectation that he is in to believe that Messiah would fit in this preconceived box. And so Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone yet. Who am I? Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, tell nobody. Why? Because he wasn't ready. His understanding of who Jesus Christ is, is not where it needs to be. In fact, Peter and the disciples don't recognize Christ's identity fully until after his resurrection. We know this because even when Judas the betrayer hands Jesus over in the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, Mark 14, 47 tells us this, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John records for us that it was Peter. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 10 and 11, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father, ha- Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And I submit to you this morning that Peter wasn't trying to cut off the slave's ear. You ever thought about that? I mean, this was an intent to take this guy out. He was coming for Jesus. Peter's concept of Christ as Messiah is not where it needs to be yet. And it doesn't fully get there until after Christ has been resurrected, until after he has come back from the grave. And so Peter, here's the thing, here's what we need to see. Peter was actively living according to his own understanding of Christ as Messiah. He was ready to defend Christ according to his own understanding of Christ's Messiahship. He was zealous for Christ. But his understanding of who Jesus was and the identity of Messiah was off. So even up to the point of his crucifixion, The disciples don't fully comprehend the identity of Christ. They didn't fully understand this passion that Jesus is speaking about, the passion of Christ. And Jesus knew something. He knew that until they grasped his identity, they could not proclaim his Messiahship. How many of us this morning come to Jesus like Peter and the disciples, having our minds made up with the answer to that question, who do you say that I am, boldly declaring you are the Christ, already believing in our hearts that we've got it all figured out. I pray that's not us this morning. I pray that we can come boldly declaring, yes, you are the Christ, you are Lord, you are the sovereign of all creation, but also saying, 
Teach us, Lord, who you are. Teach us more about following you. Teach us more about identifying with you, even in the midst of suffering and even in our daily lives. So the question, how does your understanding of Jesus' identity differ from the world's understanding? Many popular answers today to the question, who do you say that I am? Has it been shaped more by the traditions of religion or by the culture in which we live than it has by the revelation of who he is according to his word? Have we allowed other things to influence us and and shape our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, yet we have not turned to the one place where God himself has revealed to us who he is by his word? Listen, church, we must be going to God's word to understand who Jesus Christ is as Lord of our lives. The traditions of religion are many. The views today are are broad. Many trust in church attendance to save them. Many trust in their own goodness or good works to save them. But the gospel tells us that we're not saved by our own works or, or by our own merit before God. We're saved by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2. Many people believe that they, because they walked down the aisle as a child and recited the proverbial sinner's prayer that they have salvation and yet there's never been an accompanying transformation in their life. And I want you to know, believer, that the gospel does not give us a certain prayer. We must pray for salvation in Christ, but it does call us to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and then we will be given new life. We will be transformed by the Spirit of Christ within us. Many believe Jesus to be an additive to life that makes it better, especially in our culture today. Well, you got problems? Go to church. Jesus will make everything better. That's the view of culture. But if anything, we'll see even in a few moments that the call of following Jesus is not one that will make any life any easier on earth. The call to deny oneself and to take up your cross and to follow me is not a call to a happy, blissful life necessarily. The picture that Jesus gives us in this verse is anything but a blissful, easy life. doesn't mean that we don't have triumphs in life. It doesn't mean that things can't go well for us, that there are seasons of great victory and joy. But what it does mean is that the call, especially in this passage for the disciple, is to deny oneself, to take up a cross, the instrument of death, and follow me. So we need to be careful in our view and approach of just who Jesus is, his identity as Messiah. He is the sovereign savior of the universe. He is the savior of mankind, the one who has died on the cross and shed his blood for the atonement of sin, that he would forgive sin of man and all who believe in him, that they would have eternal life through the shed blood, the gift of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice that atones and pays and satisfies the wrath of God against sin. That's who Jesus is. That's the Messiah. That's the the passion of Christ that he would come and he he would go to the cross and he would set his eyes there and he would not be deterred as Peter tried to deter him. Many of you following Jesus as a set of moral and ethical guidelines that govern one's life. 
But taking this approach is a false wisdom and it it fails to, to understand, it fails to allow for the sufficiency of Scripture and it fails to seek the guidance of Holy Spirit in all of our daily living. Instead of following Christ, Script, uh, instead of following Christ, it, it becomes a, a form of legalism in our religion. And we stop following Christ and try to start carrying out this, these commands and try to start carrying out being a good person in order to earn God's favor. And basically what it does is it teaches moral living and it fails to place Jesus Christ at the center of life and focus on developing the mind of Christ. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, where the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to the church of Colossae. And he says, Do not handle and do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandment and teaching of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but listen, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence in other words you can put all these rules and regulations in place but they really do they really have little value against fleshly indulgence what has value against fleshly indulgence walking by the spirit of god the indwelling holy spirit in the life of the believer you want to refrain from sin and run from sin walk in the spirit walk in the spirit so i invite you this morning to consider what jesus says about his identity Is your view of Jesus Messiah consistent with his revelation of himself? Our understanding of Jesus as Messiah determines our actions in following Jesus as Messiah. Here's the thing. We will live in a manner consistent with what we truly believe. We will live in a manner consistent with what we truly believe about who Jesus is. Do we be Do we believe we have to do it ourselves, earn our own way to heaven? Do we believe that Jesus really, that he just saves us at one point and then we can go on and live however we want to live? Or do we believe that to be a believer in Christ, to walk with Christ according to God's word, is that we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Two very different ideas of Jesus the Messiah and what he calls us to So how do you answer the question this morning, who do you say that I am? Understanding Jesus' identity is key to understanding his mission. So secondly, this morning, I want us to see this. Secondly, defining Jesus' mission means submitting to his definition. Defining Jesus' mission means submitting to his definition. In verses 31 through 33, we see this. Jesus' identity as Messiah is linked with his mission as suffering servant, and the two cannot be separated. In verse 31, he began to teach them. So he warns them, right? Don't say anything. And then he comes back and he, begin, and he comes and he begins to teach them. And what's he teaching them? He's teaching them what it means for him to be Messiah, to be identified as Messiah. And so as he began teaching them, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And this word for Son of Man, it's a title speaking about the deity of Christ, who he is. He is God in flesh. 
And this Son of Man is used to highlight the deity of Christ. But he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes. Something consistent throughout Mark is that these are the three groups that he points out. And these are the groups that, these are the religious leaders who ought to recognize, they should recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah, yet they fail. And these are the religious leaders of the religious institution of Judaism in the day. And the problem is that even the religious leaders fail to grasp and to catch who Jesus is. In fact, he says that they were rejected or they rejected him. The point that Mark is making is that Christ doesn't fit into the box of the religious leaders of the day. He is the stone that the builders have rejected. And so it says that he would be rejected and he would be killed. And after three days, he would rise again. This word killed, it doesn't present a mystery. It literally means that he would die. He's going to be killed. These were hard words for the disciples to hear. Christ, he is is headed to the cross. He'll die for the sins of man. The just will suffer for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. His perfect life will atone for the sin of all who believe in him. And in going to the cross, he will drink the cup of the Father's wrath that's being poured out on judgment of sin. His life satisfies the wrath of God so that all who believe in Him by faith will have eternal life and be with Him in glory. But Christ pouring out His life is necessary for the life of the church, for the life of the believer, for eternal life and the Holy Spirit coming down to indwell the believer. And then Mark says that He would rise Three days later, Jesus in his word says, and then three days later, rise again. Now this speaks of the resurrection. This speaks of that day on Easter morning. This speaks of Christ coming out of the tomb. And listen, this is the manifestation of the very power of God in human flesh where he has defeated sin and death. And while he was dead, he rose to life. Satan could not hold Christ back. He gets up and he walks out of the tomb. He is alive. This is the, this is the power of Christ. This is the almighty power of God himself. And God in Christ has made a way so that while he dies for sin by the power of God and the indwelling power within his life, he rises from the dead and he defeats sin and death. And so Christ was teaching his disciples this and this was radical for them. This is so far away from what their conception of Messiah should be or would be. This is very radical to the point that something startling happens. In fact, verse 32 tells us that he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, Jesus wasn't using parables to teach them. Jesus wasn't speaking with hyperbole and over-exaggeration. Jesus wasn't speaking with metaphors or similes. He was speaking very plainly to them. He was speaking naturally. He was speaking unambiguously. There was nothing 
confusing about what Jesus was saying to the disciples. It was all very clear. They got it. They understood it. And then Peter, the spokesman for the group who a moment ago has championed the confession of Christ as Messiah, speaks up. And he says, and Peter took him aside and began rebuking him. In other words, what Peter has done is he has has pulled Jesus aside and Peter feels that he needs to correct Jesus from really embarrassing himself. So as he pulls him aside, the idea here is for a confidential consultation. Peter pulls him aside and says, now listen, listen Jesus, you need to stop talking this way. And he begins to speak sternly to Jesus and rebuke Jesus. In other words, this is not what we signed up for. What's all this talk about dying? What's all this talk about dying on a cross and rising three days later? Because Peter thinks that Jesus in his zeal, he couldn't possibly mean what he sounds like he means. Being on this side of the cross, of course, we know, we know what's coming. And it's hard to imagine the conversation, really, in any great detail that would happen. It's hard to imagine the brazenness of Peter, the disciple, who would go and rebuke Jesus, the teacher, the one who is Messiah. But certainly Peter's view of the Messiahship begins to surface here and bubble up to the surface And while we don't know the extent of the conversation, we know that it was a tense moment and that Mark contrasts, the contrast here that Mark draws between Peter's rebuke of Jesus and in verse 33, turning around, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but upon man's. We know that the rebuke, the contrast that Mark gives us here is the difference between night and day Jesus confronts Peter and the disciples in their foolish wisdom and in their wrong ideology of who he is as Messiah. And this strong scene shows us that Peter's way and God's way are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. If Peter wants his way, he cannot be a follower of Christ. Because Peter's way absolutely contradicts God's way. It's really a a simple lesson when you think about it, isn't it? My way contradicts God's way. Our ways contradict God's ways. When we are setting our minds upon man's interest and not upon God's interest. And Jesus turning around and seeing his disciples, looking at his disciples, seeing them sitting there, knowing that Jesus has just rebuked, or Peter has just rebuked the Master, looking and seeing that they are going down this wrong road of understanding of who Jesus is as Messiah. Jesus then turns, seeing them, he rebukes Peter and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now what's startling is this is the same imperative command that's used in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, when Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and nights fasting and not eating anything or drinking anything. And it says at the end of that, Satan came to him to tempt him. And after a series of tempting Jesus, Jesus looks at Satan and says, Go, Satan. It's the same word that's used to rebuke Peter 
that was used to send Satan off. And what's stronger is that Peter has gone from a moment of great confession, you're the Christ, to the next moment, he is the one who is standing there as the very enemy of God speaking the very things the enemy of God has spoken. And so Jesus has to tell him, get behind me, Satan. You're putting man's interest above God's interest. You're not setting your mind on God's interest. You're setting your mind on man's interest. And the reality is that God's divine plan really makes no sense to Peter's human perspective. This is what Paul calls us to in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 and 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You know, it's amazing to me how quickly my following Jesus can be clouded by my own self-desire and self Wants. It's, it's amazing to me how quickly my view of Christ's mission through my life can become clouded when I seek to satisfy self and I stop seeking to be satisfied and find my satisfaction and contentment in God. And Peter promotes man's interest above God's and when that happens like Peter, hear me out, when that happens like Peter, we, we become stumbling blocks for others. Peter finds himself as a stumbling block in the path of Christ at this point. And so Christ has to rebuke Peter. And I'm afraid that most, if not all of us, find ourselves identifying with Peter more at this point than we'd like to admit. Sure, we identify with Peter in the confession of Christ. But we also find ourselves identifying with Peter at this point. We wouldn't openly admit or rebuke Jesus perhaps, but don't we do it through our actions? Don't we rebuke Christ when we choose our own way above His? And it greatly impacts our life. Like Peter in the garden, what we truly believe is going to be fleshed out through how we live. We sit back and oftentimes we we want to coast in our Christianity. We say, boy, life is good, and, 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 and inwardly we, don't, we have this stale faith All the while, we struggle to grow in Christ because we have more pressing things to do with our time than read our Bible and study God's Word and spend time with Christ alone in prayer. Oftentimes, we find ourselves distant and critical about many things that are going on within the church or many things that that just are happening in life because we lack fellowship with Christ or with other believers Church, can I say as a kind of a caveat here, this is why we, we have the home groups where we meet together for fellowship in God's Word. We meet together as a body. We come together as a community that we would mutually encourage one another and hold one another accountable so that as we walk in Christ, we're not walking alone, but we're walking as a body of believers. It's my plug for home groups. So if you're not involved in a home group, Be involved in a home group. It's important. It's intricately important in your spiritual growth in all seriousness. For discipleship and growing in Christ, it is vitally important. 
We find ourselves discontent in our lives. So here's what we do. We, we try to fill it with, with things of the world, thinking they'll bring peace. Really, though, it's the peace that only Jesus himself can give us. And so for Peter, Peter, he has to learn that defining Jesus' mission means submitting to his definition, not bringing his own definition and inflecting it upon the ministry of Christ as Messiah. But when we come to the place spiritually where we're ready to submit ourselves to Christ and learn from him, then we will be satisfied in our relationship with God. That's when we'll hear his call and surrender our lives to following his will. Because the truth is that you and I, we cannot redefine the call of God or the will of God in our lives. I want you to hear that. You cannot redefine the will of God in your life. Believer. The call of God is to deny yourself. We are called to take up our cross and to follow him. I'm not called to tell Jesus what my will for my life is. Rather, I'm called to submit my will to his will. And so that leads us to our third point in verse 34. And I'll try to hurry through this and make it through. The, the discerning, discerning Jesus' call means surrendering my will to his Discerning Jesus' call means surrendering my will to his. In verse 34, he summoned the crowd with the disciples, with his disciples, and said to them. Now, just in case we have been thinking that all of the words thus this morning thus far have been pointed at the twelve disciples or the apostles, we're wrong. Because right here, Jesus summons the crowd. And so following Jesus' call, meaning surrendering my will to his, we see the crowd brought in here, and the crowd includes everyone. Everyone who is called to follow Christ. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, here's what he must do. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Anyone refers to all, every believer in Christ Jesus. It refers to every disciple. And hear this out. It is incongruous. It does not go together to say, a person say that I am a Christian, yet I am not a disciple. If we say we are a Christian, then that means, by very definition, we are a disciple of Christ. And so the question then becomes, what is Christ calling us as his disciples to do? How are we, as Christ's disciples, to walk with him? He says, if anyone wishes to come after me. If we're going to follow him, and to walk with them, we must understand the call of God. And understanding the call of God in your life and my life, believer, begins here in verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Realize the call to follow Jesus is the call to lose our lives. 
He says that in verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How do we define losing our life for Christ's sake and the gospels? Look back in verse 34. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is an essential element in the life of anyone and everyone who follows Christ. The call to deny oneself and follow him. So he says, if anyone wishes to come, he must deny. For the believer, this is really the opposite of setting our mind on our own or upon man's interest. It's actively choosing to set my mind, like Paul is talking about in Colossians 3.1, actively choosing to set my mind upon the things of God, upon God's interest. Jesus defines pursuing God's interest as following him. How do we pursue God's interest? Follow Jesus Christ. Deny ourselves. Jesus defines pursuing God's interests as following him. And self-denial is what he's calling us to rather than self-promotion. He says, secondly, to take up your cross. I know you know the implement of the cross is an implement of torture and death. It is an implement of derision. And I want you to hear me closely here. The metaphor that Jesus chooses to use here. It is not one that speaks about walking through the enduring hardships of life as James was necessarily talking about. But in the context, Jesus is referring to the very cross that he is about to carry. And he is calling his disciples not simply to be able to endure hardship, though it doesn't negate us walking through and and enduring hardship and difficult seasons, but literally he is calling his disciples to be ready to lay down their very lives, to lay down our lives for the sake of following Christ. Christ knowing that he is heading to the cross. Of course, the tradition of all the apostles being martyred for their faith, but one, John, who supposedly died of old age, though they attempted, tradition tells us, to kill him, they tortured him. We look at Acts chapter 7 and see Stephen, this man who dies because he is preaching the gospel for gospel's sake. In Acts chapter 7, he stands there and proclaims the gospel and they begin pelting and throwing stones at him and killing him. And so Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so it means to go where Jesus goes. And Jesus is calling all who follow him to a radical abandonment of one's own identity. One commentator said that it is uh, one's, to, to be radically abandoning one's own identity and self-determination. It's a call to join the march to the place of execution Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from giving up chocolate for Lent. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. Tremendous challenge. What Christ is calling the disciples to is to lay down their lives, not to seek to save their own life, but to lose it for Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake. 
So Jesus is called in the life of all who follow him in walking in discipleship is a call of humility and denying oneself, of taking up one's cross and of following him. Let me ask you, believer, are you seeking to grow in your walk with Christ by denying yourself? Think about that for a moment. It's a daily struggle, is it not? Wake up and today to deny self so that I walk and follow him and grow in him. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And it refers to this very mission of proclamation that he expects his disciples to walk in to proclaim the word. But don't forget that that is a challenge to you and I as well. When he says that in verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Inherent in losing our life for the sake of the Gospel is the proclamation of the Gospel. And that doesn't just mean the preacher. That doesn't just mean the Sunday school teacher. That means you and I. That means each one of us in everyday life to live out faithfully and to speak the Word of God boldly. This is the call of denying ourselves and taking up our cross. Then he asks a rhetorical question in verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It begs the answer, will he give his own life for the pursuit of all this world has to offer? For the pursuit of satisfying himself and the pleasures of this world? Or will he deny himself and pursue and follow Christ. That's the answer that he's looking for, that we would deny ourselves and follow him in all things. Jesus says, if you were ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. I want to close with that there to say that Christ's word to us this morning. As we look at the passion of Christ and what he comes and teaches his disciples, that those who would follow him, they must understand and discern the true identity of Christ and who he reveals himself to be. Do you need to change your understanding of who Jesus Christ is this morning? Have you been living with a faulty understanding of Christ and What he demands of our lives is walking as disciples of Christ. Understand for for you, Christian, for the believer, that walking as a disciple of Christ is not an option. To be a Christian is to walk as a disciple. And so if you've fallen, believer, pray, ask God to pick you up so that you begin walking and denying self, that you begin taking up your cross and you begin following him seeking out His mission in and through your life. And finally, discerning Jesus' call means surrendering my will to His. Is that what you're actively doing? Are you actively surrendering, believer, your will to His? I pray that you are. I pray that everybody in this room this morning is at that place of actively surrendering our will to His. But more than likely... That's not the case for every one of us in here this morning. And so more than likely, in a moment when we have a time of invitation or singing, 
you need to spend some time in prayer confessing before the Lord Jesus maybe how you have not lived completely for His glory, maybe how you have um, tried to define His will in your life instead of submitting to His will in your life. I, I don't know. Maybe this morning you're here and you don't know Jesus at all. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to hear this. The first thing a person does when coming into relationship with Jesus Christ is to confess their sin before the Lord, repent, ask for forgiveness, and then submit to Him as Lord of your life, believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we would have eternal life, placing our faith and trust in this One who has died to give us life. I'm going to close this in prayer. Then I want to invite you to respond as the Lord leads. Maybe you want to come up and just pray at the steps as a sign of a commitment to the Lord this morning, as a sign of renewal perhaps, or... Maybe you've got questions about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you are looking for some answers and you would like someone to pray with you. And I'll be down here in front. I would love to pray with you this morning if that be your need. Or maybe you just need someone to pray for encouragement and I'll be here for that as well. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we come seeking to... Be transparent, be real, be repentant. Father, truly desiring to walk in you, truly desiring to be those disciples that you're calling us to be, the disciple that would deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Lord, help us to focus on walking with you. Help us to depend upon you and I pray, God, that you would strengthen us today to respond even to the call that you are laying before us. And so, Lord, give us strength, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand?